Thank you for joining us on the MS and Sex Podcast. On this podcast and in our classes, we are on a journey to discover what fulfilling and empowering sexuality means for us as individuals and within our wider culture. Everything we learn and all our conversations will benefit everyone, but especially folks with a chronic neurological or autoimmune condition. We discuss topics that cover the physical, psychological, emotional, spiritual, and societal implications of chronic conditions on our sexual well-being. There is no subject off-limits here. So, get ready. Don't flinch. This month, I am sharing the extended version of the interview that I had with Dr. Jolie Hamilton. Jolie is a wonderful human being and has been a kind advisor and support for me. Now, in this discussion, we talked about jealousy, and this was one of my most listened to episodes. But now you will get to hear the whole thing. I am releasing this uncut interview in three parts. This is part three. I am choosing this one because I am thrilled that Jolie is coming back for another interview that will air in July. And this time, she's bringing her husband, true love, and primary partner, Ken. Together, they host the Project Relationship Podcast. It is an inspiring and informative podcast about relationships, and I love the way that they go where many folks do not dare to tread. There will be a link to their show in the episode notes. The other reason I'm inviting them is that Ken has MS, and I have not had a chance to talk with him about how MS and his sexuality interact with each other. So this is going to be a great episode. So grab your favorite beverage, sit back, and enjoy this replay of a thought-provoking conversation about relationship structures and how the green-eyed monster jealousy isn't really so scary after all. Jolie, thank you for joining us today. It is our pleasure to get to talk to you about jealousy in the context of polyamory. Can you talk about personalities that you feel are more or less conducive to polyamorous relationships? Sure. So um, as someone who studied Jungian psychology, personality is a pretty big deal. He, he thought pretty significantly about personality as sort of as, as a sort of more or less um, formed part of ourselves, like a more or less um, sameness that we experience right over the course of life. Um, I found something very, very unusual that I really wish that I had done the quantitative study to go with my qualitative study and my and my chair felt the same way. We were sorry to not have got this data. Um, the vast majority of my participants described themselves as introverted, not extroverted. And when people imagine a polyamorous person, especially if you if you practice monogamy and you and you don't have a lot of exposure to polyamory, the imagination, right, is this this person who's out cruising, they're flirting all the time, they're at parties, they're super outgoing, they're comfortable out in the world, and yet that is just not what turned up in my study at all. And so I've been asking more and more people, and yep, time after time, they're like, oh no, I'm introverted. Oh, I'm introverted. Now, you know, introversion and extroversion are, are pretty contentious terms. People don't necessarily use those words the way Jung would have used them, but at root, I just find that really interesting that in fact, these tend to be people 
Whether they describe themselves as introverted or extroverted, they tend to be very self-reflective. So I had these in-depth interviews with person after person, and boy, they could talk about their relationships, not just like what happened, but what happens, and then how they thought about what happens, and how they talked to their partner about what happens, and how they had talked to their partner's partners, their metamors, that's, that's their partner's partners, how they talked to them about what happened, and how their whole community responded to what happened. And they had then reflected upon that in a sort of meta way. They'd stopped and thought about that. That's a lot of a lot of reflection. That is a lot of self-reflection. It's a lot of introspection. And that seems to be a quality that carries, like that really helps people navigate the complexities of dealing with more than one love relationship where there mm-hmm. might be competing needs or there might be um, just sticky, icky situations or just really complicated calendars, right? Like the ability to take that time. They're not simple. Yeah. It, these relationships are not simple. They may be easeful but they're not simple. Right. So yeah, I think people who tend to embrace complexity or embrace the mess of life um, and people who are comfortable with the idea that things always change. Change is the one thing you can count on. I was told very early in my own experience of polyamory that the one thing you can count on is that you won't finish your adventure with the same person you started with. And I thought, yeah, but you know what? That's pretty much true of just life anyways. And I find that to be an incredibly freeing thing. I, t- I tease all the time about how um, my husband has is obligated to pay for all of my divorces. And <laughs> and it's, it's funny to me because I don't take seriously the idea that our relationship would be best if it was long. Yeah. Polyamorous people tend to be um, people who can transition or are okay with transitioning between relationships with a little less, um, a little less terror. Mm-hmm. You know, which doesn't mean it's easy at all. Or grasping. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and you know, it's also learned. I would say, you know, the newer that someone was, the, in my study, the newer someone was, the more they were relying on the ideas of how polyamory could work to just sort of carry them through the, the pain points because they existed. And that was okay. They, they had made peace with the fact that it wasn't going to be okay. And, and so that's it. If the ability to accept change and shadow, and the not knowing, and just go for it. I know you kind of touched on the, the ongoing debate around the nature of polyamory. I don't know that we really talked about it a whole lot, but my question is, what exactly are people debating, and and how and how does that outcome of this debate affect people in their relationship? And where do you land on that? Like, do you think it's an orientation or a lifestyle choice? Yeah. So I think this is an important question when we're talking about the rights that our governmental structures provide to people who are allowed to get married. So when, so um, gay marriage became, you know, has finally started to get some traction. It is legal in more and more countries. And one of the arguments that's made when when a country is shifting their legal base towards like, yes, we're going to accept this what seems obvious reality to me, um, one of the arguments that is made is, well, next thing you know, they'll be wanting to marry multiple people. And well, it brings up an interesting question right away. Why don't we? What is the problem? Because if around 50% of marriages end in divorce, which by the way, 
it, that that figure has not changed that much over the years, over over centuries even. Like if you think about divorce in a in a strict sense of like when people were allowed to get divorced, did they? <laughs> you know, you can't count the people who weren't allowed to. <laughs> if you wanna if you wanna yeah. compare apples to apples. Yeah. Um if you if you're thinking about how um how freedom and marriage and rights are doled out and you say we only allow two people to get married then right away we're we're prescripting something and we're we're we're, we're at the very least we're giving preferential treatment to some particular relationship style now the reason this is important is because if i experience polyamory the capacity to love many people if I experience it as an orientation, then I may make an argument that that orientation is unchangeable and therefore should result in a protected status, right? But there's a problem there because what if somebody doesn't experience their desire for polyamory as endemic? Do they not deserve protected status? Now, once you protect someone's status, then you've also set up this expectation that something is endemic and unchangeable and that comes with a set of conclusions like if you walk that out to its logical end that gets you to some messy places too because now you have people who want to change the thing and they will sort of forcibly try to change it then you want other people who want just the behavior to change we don't care what you feel just change the behavior it gets really messy really yeah. fast. That's the bottom line. Yeah. And what I think we have to remember is that no matter how someone comes to their decision to participate in polyamory, we have to think about what our what we are asking other people to give up in rights so that we can be comfortable. I'm not I I don't I don't care too much about marriage. I ha I am married for the second time. I love it. It's like, oh, I love it so much. And I love him so much. And he's like, he's my soulmate. And I don't even believe in soulmates. It's just, yeah, it's just ridiculous. And I also just don't care about marriage at all. It's very complicated um, as an inner experience. But as an outer experience, well, it's simpler to be married. Plain and simple. It's just simpler to be married. When, when I hear people debating polyamory, um, as an orientation or a philosophy or a mindset or a behavior. What I hear them debating is who gets to practice it and who's more polyamorous or who's more purely polyamorous and who's just practicing. And I hear these words like the, the purity problem is built right in, right? Like, it, <laughs> are you poly enough? Are you good enough poly? Are you, um, there's problems there, but then there's also, well, what if somebody what if somebody isn't polyamorous as an orientation, but they want to practice it and they just do? Do I get to say that they don't? Who gets to decide this? Which board, what certifying body is going to say who I am? The slippery slope of like trying to decide who people are. So I am pro letting people identify for themselves. End of story. Like just, just figure it out and then treat other people with the care. Treat other people with care. Just do that. Start there. And if we want to imagine this as a philosophy, that can be helpful because if we imagine it as a philosophy, it can open up new questions. 
just just questions. We don't have to do anything about it. If we think about it just as a behavior, we get trapped in the in the idea that polyamory is about having sex with a lot of people, and it's it's just not like go talk to uh, go talk to anyone who's polyamorous. They're like, oh, it's not about that. You may, in fact, some people do, but that is, I mean, some monogamous people have a lot of sex too. Right. Lots of monogamous people have lots of sex with people who aren't their partners. Right. <laughs> but they're still monogamous because they're married or they're in a long-term relationship. They declare the monogamy. They aren't polyamorous, I'll tell you that. They're having an extramarital or an extra relationship affair that involves the one thing that polyamory can't tolerate, which is the deceit, the breaking of trust. But you can cheat in polyamory too. Because if you've made an agreement and then you don't follow that agreement, now we're still in that realm. They probably wouldn't use the word cheat so often yeah. though, but they would talk about the breaking of trust. Yeah. And and they would deal with it in a different way. In a different way. Yep. Yeah. There are, there are different ramifications because you've made different upfront agreements and you don't use the one rule to rule them all. That's one of my, that's one of the things that frustrates me the most is, you know, people's extreme reaction to the concept of, you know, polyamory, non-monogamy, whereas extramarital affairs in this culture are just a given. It's just like not a big deal. You don't get that reaction. You don't get that kind of reaction from people right. when you bring that up. And I find that so frustrating and tragic, just tragic. It leaves a conversation that could be valuable. Yeah. It leaves it out. Um, we could have a conversation about what does it mean to have intentional agreements and keep them and allowing yourself and your partner to have the grace to transition out of a relationship in a a way that can be positive even if it's hurtful like even if it sucks even even if you're not wanting that but to transition in with as much grace as possible rather than lie and betray betrayal is an enormous betrayal is its own archetypal quality mm -hmm. betrayal is huge and that we talk about even less than jealousy james hillman has a great essay on betrayal yeah, for people who are looking. Okay, well, you can, I don't know if that's, I don't think that, that isn't one of the ones that you passed on to me, but you can. No, no, that's a, that's an older paper. Um, it's an older paper, but it's, it's very interesting when you're thinking about the position of the person who believes that they've set up rules that protect them from having to feel jealous, which is what monogamy purports to do. Monogamy, unfortunately, and this, this really is unfortunate. The idea of monogamy that, where you don't have an explicit set of conversations that happens over and over again all the time about what the rules are and what you expect from each other is that you have this implicit bond that implies a whole bunch of rules and you just rely on that. The number of people who are monogamous who told me, oh, like they know what the rules are. I mean, you know, they know what the rules are. And I'm like, well, when did you talk about them? Uh, and it doesn't take long for them to realize, you know what? I, they didn't have all those conversations. They never had the explicit. Now, some people do, but it's the vast minority. It's the minority. And what happens then is you get set up for the potential for betrayal. So you don't have to choose polyamory or monogamy. It's choosing implicit versus explicit communication. Those are the choices to my mind. That's a great way to put it. That is a much more important choice and yeah, our way to yeah. look at the choice. And easy to enact today. Yeah. Yeah. It's easy to enact. Everybody can decide to have the courageous conversations. That is most of my client work. Talk about how do we have courageous conversations where even if we've been together for 40 years, we say the things 
that weren't said. And we start being alive and growing and changing next to each other. We brave that. Yeah. I, I think that we can all sense a, the potential for a really massive shift in uh, the United States culture right now. And so there's a, I'm not sure if I'm going to pronounce their name right, Shipper. There's a quote from yes. Shipper. Yeah. Yeah. Mimi Shipper. That really jumped out at me. And, um, and I wanted to get you to expound on their argument that turning away from the monogamous couple through polysexualities offers an opportunity to reorient not just relationships, but also gender and race relations. Yeah, it's, it's a pretty contentious quote from a, a fairly contentious book, I think. Um, it's an interesting book. But I think what Shipper is talking about is when we, when we let go of the idea that monogamy is the only way that relationship happens, it kind of blows our mind open. And when those, that mind is blown open, all of a sudden there's, oh, I actually am taking a lot of things for granted. I am presuming to understand the lived experience of everyone else in my culture through my eyes. What if I don't? Uh-oh. <laughs> it is it is a mind-blowing experience and one that is often first felt through something really big happening. Some cataclysmic event happens and you can't unsee it. For me it was a numinous event. It was the experience of being on this hot sweaty dance floor with everything music is pulsing and everything and I felt a wash in the most sacred and holy light I had ever experienced. And I could never unsee it. That I think is what Shippers is getting to is like, what do we, what are we holding back from? What if we just break through to being able to see a multiplicity of realities all the time? And anytime you can practice that in any context, yes. it becomes easier. Exactly. And like practice plurality, right? And we can practice that in some very functional and real and practical ways, but we can also practice it in our mind. We can practice letting go of the idea that monogamy protects us from jealousy and say, in fact, it protects me from having to think about jealousy today. And what if I just let go of that idea? I don't have to let go of my monogamy. I could just let go of the idea that I am protected from jealousy and instead question, where do I feel jealousy? Where does jealousy enter my experience? And use that as a, as a way to make a little space to be in the unknown, which is, I mean, I think that's the space we all need right now as we question the status quo and allow space for there to be an absolutely new reality. Thank you. That's really important. Yeah. But I love what you say in your acknowledgments about your partner, Ken. Uh, I think it encapsulates the richest aspects of the conversation around polyamory. I mean, just, or maybe not the richest aspects, just the most, it's just, that, just touching. Is that where I say, yeah, I know what I said. I said that, well, first off, he held everything together while I went to school for many, many, many years. So I had to finish my bachelor's as an adult, then get my master's, then get my PhD. Um, and he held everything together and prioritized our family awesomely. That was awesome. But you know what really gets me is that he never makes me choose between my freedom and loving him. 
he just doesn't. And he does it in a way that makes me stare <laughs> in disillusioned wonder. It comes to him so naturally, his ability to hold me so beautifully, but without ever clinging. It's, it's indescribable. I didn't know that. So I didn't know how to do it. I had to learn how to do that. He had this capacity just in him. And so he modeled it for me without us ever really even talking about it. And, and then we started to get conscious about it. And I wanted to know how to do that. And that's how I know it's a practice because I did not always know how to do that. <laughs> right. That's a really important thing for people to hear. I think that even someone who has um, made this, you know, part of your life study right now, and you've written an incredible dissertation on it, and, and it's still hard. It's still hard for you. Yes. Yep. Yeah. I think of it as my philosophical and spiritual practice to be mindful of how there is no such thing as pure security and that I can be totally at peace with that. That is, you know, it's, it's like being at peace with entropy. Yeah, I have to be. What else, what other option is there, <laughs> right? So, um, and, and actually, so my, my husband was trained as, as a physicist, so he comes at it from that, like, well, <laughs> change is inevitable. <laughs> Entropy's still happening, so, yeah. yeah. Well, I had other questions, but we have, I have to cut this, this interview down. <laughs> It's, yeah, it's so big. It's so hard when you're talking about, especially a dissertation that took on two topics, which I was asked over and over again to narrow and choose jealousy or polyamory. And I'm like, okay, but I'm not. I'm just not going to do it. It's just a lot conceptually to take on. So, yeah. That's why people <laughs> can download your paper yeah. and read it. It's yes, very absolutely. good. Absolutely. Thank you so much for spending the time to talk with me today. Well, thank you. Thank you for having such great questions. I saw your questions a little bit. I didn't even have a chance to go through them all. They're amazing. Good. good. Thank I, you. I, I, well, I, they're inspired by your work. So I really appreciate it. And I've had, I think I told you, I've had a couple of requests for this topic. It wasn't one that I intended to dive into right away <laughs> because it's so yeah. intense. But um, there, yeah. there it is. It just kind of flowed. And so I really appreciate you. Sometimes people want what they <laughs> That's want. Right. That's right. <laughs> and it has... It has captured our imagination. Our, our our social imagination is captivated. It's in our TV shows. It's in our movies. It's everywhere. I've written other work on that. It's everywhere now. And and not portrayed in a particularly healthy way. Either. Often it is not. Steven Universe. If you need one good example, Steven Universe, the, the the children's cartoon. If you if you need to digest something that has the polyimaginal. Um, reality or the imagination of polyamory without ever saying the words ever they never say anything about it and there it is it's absolutely beautiful I, I didn't I hadn't even heard of that I don't have little ones anymore <laughs> so I will check that out. <laughs> out thank you so much Jolie I really am super grateful I appreciate it it was great to see you Thank you for joining me on the MS and Sex podcast. That was part three of our three-part series on jealousy with Dr. Jolie Hamilton. Part one and two are already out, so you can find those on your podcast platform or on our website. Remember that next month, Jolie and her primary partner, Ken, will be joining us for a conversation about MS, 
relationships, and sex. I also want to take a moment and let you know that I am in the process of designing a research study. Through this pilot study, we hope to gain an understanding of how kink or alternative lifestyle activities and choices affect a person's experience of MS or other chronic illnesses. So, if you have a chronic health condition and you engage in any kind of alternative relationship structure or alternative sexuality practices, email me at info at msexualhealth.com. I would love for you to be a part of this pilot study. When you email me, I'll send you much more information and answer any questions that you have. But basically, you'll just be sitting down with me over Zoom for a 60 to 90 minute conversation. The information will be kept anonymous and by taking part, you will be furthering sex research that will benefit everyone, but especially those with chronic conditions and disabilities. I am very excited about this study and I would love to talk with you about your experiences. Remember, info at msexualhealth.com. There's going to be a link in the episode notes. And please don't forget to take a moment and rate and review the podcast. Thank you so much.